Greetings and salutations. You're listening to This Ends at Prom, a podcast where I, teen movie apologist BJ Colangelo, show my wife, Harmony Colangelo, a seminal teen girl movie that I missed out on because I grew up as a teen boy. Is today's movie truly emblematic of womanhood? Or of rose-colored nostalgia glasses warped your perspective? Circle yes, no, or maybe to find out if we're crowning a queen? Or if we're killing the teen dream. Welcome to This Ends at Prom. This Ends at Prom is a Pod People production. I don't wanna be your merch girl. I wanna be your goddamn idol. And I don't wanna have to work twice as hard for the same motherfucking title. But I. Hello, and welcome to our podcast, Shut Up and Listen. That's so much less spicy than the teenage activism of the movie. (laughs) Well, Lily Moskovitz is a teen activist icon, and I love Heather Matarazzo, and there was no way I was going to miss the opportunity to open the show like that. Our podcast reaches 12 people. (laughs) Oh, gosh. See, that would really break my heart, though, because San Francisco is a huge city. So if I found out my cable show only reached 12 people, I would also be a little sad about it. It's public access, so I don't know. It just it, it theoretically reaches more people. Mm-hmm. Just people aren't watching it. Yeah, that's very true. Very, very true. I'm, we, we can go into many reasons about why later when we talk about her. <laughs> anyway, hi, friends. Hello. Welcome to our episode, our anniversary episode for... The 20th anniversary. The 20th anniversary, which also, there was a thing on TikTok this week that was like, do you know these songs from 20 years ago that were the top five on Billboard? And it was like, You Remind Me by Usher and Fallen by Alicia Keys and I'm For Real by Ja Rule and and J-Lo and... Blow Your Mind by Gwen Stefani and Eve, and I feel like there's one more that I'm missing, but I'm really bad at math, but what I'm really worse at is accepting that those songs are 20 years old, and that this movie is 20 years old, and I'm, I'm old. I'm like the Crypt Keeper. That's a different Disney movie. It is, but and- it come. It has this very similar <laughs> flavor as this one. It does. Also, the song you were trying to think of was Hit Em Up Style. Oh, that's right, Blue Cantrell, which that's embarrassing that I forgot that was on the list because I've sang that song multiple times in public. <laughs> oh, well. It's okay. I am also the Crypt Keeper, but not quite as much of the Crypt Keeper as you mm-hmm. because I did not know half the songs in that lineup. <laughs> and true. I also didn't really watch this movie at the time. I mean, I kind of did. I don't know if I did. I'm definitely aware of it. I've definitely seen parts of it, but it's, I just absorbed it into the air. Like, it's like an airborne virus. (laughs) Yeah, this is a movie that I loved 20 years ago when Uh it came out. It It was a big movie for me. But I also remember that the Disney Channel advertised for this incessantly. Because I think what a lot of people forget is that the Disney Channel is one of the channels that does not do advertising unless it's for other 
Disney properties. Usually other stuff on the Disney Channel. It's but very insular. Yeah, but if there's anything that they're really trying to push for the Disney Channel audiences, they'll just overload with commercials. Mm-hmm. So I have seen the scene of Anne Hathaway going, I'm a what? Shut up. I beg your pardon. Like, I've seen that a million times. That is going to be one of those last flash memories uh, before my body shuts down when I finally die will be that commercial. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So it makes sense to me that you think that you've, like, absorbed this movie because I think it's been very omnipresent, especially when we were kids. You, like, also saw this marketing a lot because they marketed it a lot outside of the Disney Channel, too. So it probably bled into other things you were watching probably i mean maybe i just think that i've seen this movie because i've seen lots of commercials but i'm like i think i know this movie and i'm watching i'm like all of this seems familiar but when would i have watched the prince's diaries i don't know who would have introduced me to this movie Mm -hmm. and i don't think i would have gone out of my way for it on my own (laughs) yeah this was one that was big on the rentals for me and Mm -hmm. then my mom eventually bought it because my mom loves this movie as well so we watched it a lot with the daycare because it was fun mm-hmm. and we used to recreate the scenes. The makeover scene was one that we used to do a lot. Um, we watched this a lot at sleepovers with like my baton core mm-hmm. and we would all do the scene where you learn how to sit like a princess and wave and thank you for being here. Like that got a lot of rotation. I, I, I don't understand the prince's way of this, like, backhanded thing that's almost, like, gesturing mm-hmm. for you to, like, go on, go mm-hmm. on. It's like, no, the princess wave is, like, the little light wrist movement, right? Isn't the it? The light wrist movement is the beauty pageant wave. Where the, you're in, like, a parade. Yes. The welcoming kind of circular hand is, like, the royal. Like, you're waving, but at the same time, you're also, like, opening your body language of like, yes, I see you. And at the mm-hmm. same time, your arm is going down. So it's almost like you're honoring them. There's a whole psychology. There's a psychology. It. <laughs> it's, it's manipulation. Yeah, for real, for real. So yeah, we're talking about the Princess Diaries today. And for those who've not seen it, let's see what our friends at Fandango have to say. Shy San Francisco teenager Mia Thermopolis, Anne Hathaway, is thrown for a loop when, from out of the blue, she learns the astonishing news that she's a real-life princess. As the heir apparent to the crown of the small European principality of Genovia, Mia begins a comical journey toward the throne when her strict and formidable grandmother, Queen Clarice Rinaldi, Julie Andrews, shows up to give her princess lessons. Yeah, that's about right. Yeah, I think that that's a pretty good way of putting it. There's some exclamation points in there. So were, they were, there, were you not you were you not accenting? Were I you not was enunciating not. Was, and really popping? I was not giving the dramatic language because it was like astonishing news that she's a real life princess. Whoa. I was like, <laughs> I don't need to do that. We know where we at. You should have read it like the news reporters that constantly interject to give you context for scenes throughout this entire movie. <laughs> the news reporters in this movie are so annoying because their their writing is very much 2000s cringy news uh-huh. uh, where they're definitely trying to hello fellow kids with jokes and they're not funny. <laughs> like Mia no longer stands for missing in action. Genovia has found their princess. Get away. Get off of my TV screen. They're trying to be clever. It's all, it's all that, uh, that weatherman energy. Yeah. Weatherman energy is something that I think 
we should be using as a descriptor more frequently because the second you say weatherman energy, everybody knows exactly what that means. It's like middle class foppish. Yeah. Oh, I like that. Middle class, <laughs> middle class foppish. I like that. That's clever. Thanks. <laughs> so before we dive in too deep, let's go back to that cringy time of 2001 and tell me what's uh, going on right about now. I think I say this every single time we look at context, but this was another weird period because life <laughs> is strange like that. The 2000s were a very weird time. Weren't they just? So in our Mean Girls episode, we talked about how the years that preceded 2004 were a veritable wasteland in terms of like teen girl media. Mm-hmm. And we, we, we pointed a few reasons at it, but the main one being like, oh, yes, post 9-11. Right. That got weird. This is the year of 9-11, obviously, so all these things were being put into production and coming out before that. So we're getting to the point of, like, the parody of a teen movie because the formula has been so well established. Well, because 1999 just was the year of teen movies, so it makes mm-hmm. total sense that that's happening at the same time as, like, Scary Movie is launching. So, mm-hmm. of course, I know this is the year we get Not Another Teen Movie. Mm-hmm. So you get that as well as like the sort of mean-spirited residual spite that you get with uh, things like Sugar and Spice. and Basically the go energy of trying to redefine mm-hmm. a teen movie. But coming out in just the summer months of July and August when Princess Diaries came out, here was some of the stuff you were competing with in the, the theaters at the time. Legally Blonde. Classic. Iconic. Scary Movie 2. I would argue also kind of classic. I will. <laughs> it's my favorite of the series. I, it's got Tim Curry. That gives it points. Ghost World. I love Ghost World. Spirited Away. Oh, I love Spirited Away. So do I. It's, <laughs> I don't remember what the splash of Spirited Away was at the time of its release. I don't know if I remember either. I just remember it hit and everyone was talking about it. Mm-hmm. And I know for a lot of people around our age, this was kind of their first introduction to a lot of like Miyazaki films, yeah, because this was so popular. Well, it won an Academy Award. Yeah. So one day we'll do that and we'll dive more into like the, the idea of that and that'll be great. Um, American Pie 2. Oh. Wet Hot American Summer. I love Wet Hot American Summer. Summer Catch with Jessica Biel and Freddie Prince Jr. Hey, that's a movie. <laughs> wow, okay. <laughs> and uh, Bubble Boy starring Jake Gyllenhaal. I have such a love-hate relationship with Bubble Boy in that I hate how much I love it. Yeah, is that it? (laughs) Yeah. There's so many problems with that movie, but if it's on, I'm not going to be like, ugh, Bubble Boy, change it. I'll be like, eh, you can leave it on. I've I've watched Bubble Boy a lot of times. Also, what a roller coaster year for Jake Gyllenhaal that he did this and Donnie Darko. Yeah, the range. Incomparable, (laughs) obviously. (laughs) So... That's what we're looking at, like, theatrically. Um, I'd say it's a lot more mature or also a lot more subversive and, in some cases, very mean-spirited takes on teen movies. Well, yeah, because we got kind of our glory year with 99, so now it's time to subvert the formula that's been established and do something edgier. Yeah, but on the opposite end of the sort of more adult, more mean-spirited teen fair, you have Disney, who I wouldn't say is thriving... Oh, we are in the golden years of DCOMs, baby. I wouldn't say this is a golden year. This this is past where I start recognizing I titles. We're, we're in the golden era. Th- this is the maybe the end of the golden era. No, there's some years that follow that were pretty solid. This is like the 
the sophomore slump, I guess. Okay. See, I'm, I did not watch Disney Channel, which comes into a lot of this. But mm-hmm. once I stop recognizing DCOM titles... Like, as a whole, it's like, well, I don't know. I'm, I'm not the best authority on this, but it certainly doesn't feel like we're in the, the golden era. Well, that's so, fine, because I am an authority on this. I so know you I'm are. I'm here to take that mantle. Yeah, so some of the titles I do recognize and some of the, the more notable DCOMs from this year include the sequels to both Xenon and Halloween Town. Which are both fantastic. Are they? Yeah, I like them. Okay, well, that's good enough for me. I mean, it's hard to follow what are arguably two of the best decoms ever made. Uh-huh. But I do think that they are solid sequels. Okay, cool. I've never seen either of them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you have Motocrossed. Motocrossed is a trans mask awakening for a lot of people or even just a queer awakening for a lot of people because it is based on Twelfth Night, mm-hmm. but with, you know, extreme sports and a girl who pretends to be her brother and cuts all her hair off and... The, yeah, there's a lot of stuff to unpack with that one. That that might be a decom that we'll actually talk about someday. I assume that we're going to end up talking about a lot of decoms over the course of this podcast. If I have any say, then yeah, we will. <laughs> this is like um, what what an unlimited number of monkeys with an unlimited number of typewriters with limitless time. Like we'll, we'll, write we'll eventually do most of the decoms. Correct. <laughs> So uh, the last two that I want to bring up are The Luck of the Irish. I love The Luck of the Irish. Which I know that you like to bring up all the time because, haha, <laughs> Cleveland. Oh, yeah. And the last one, which I know you were very excited to talk about with somebody recently, Twas the Night. All right. I got to interview Nick Castle for something completely unrelated to Twas the Night, which, for those that don't know, is a DCOM starring Brian Cranston as a con man Santa Claus, and it is kind of one of the early examples of like, hey, maybe Brian Cranston can play like kind of villains. And I like to think that there is a direct through line from Twas the Night to Breaking Bad. That's just me. But Nick Castle, who directed it, is the original Michael Myers. He's the shape. And I got to interview him and I brought up Twas the Night and he cracked up. He's like, no one ever brings this up. And I was like, well, good news for you. I am the intersection of horror movies and decoms. Big fan of all of your work. <laughs> I, 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 we just need to have like a sit down talk about this, maybe for like the Patreon or something where it's like, just teach me about decoms because I'm so out of my depth. I would honestly do a main show episode of just like, let's talk about decoms because I think it's worth talking about. We'll just, just we'll just run a gauntlet of decoms. Maybe. For those who want to learn more about decoms, I do highly recommend it's a podcast that is not making new episodes, but there's a huge back catalog, and it's Zetus La Podcast. It's hosted by Zach Heltzel. I was on it for an episode on Pixel Perfect, um, but it is a oral history of DCOMs, and it's fantastic. So check that out if you have any interest in DCOMs at all. That that sounds like a lot. Can you just give me like the spark notes in our spare time? Sometime I will, yes. Okay, thank you. Because over the last year, I've certainly learned a lot about teen movies, but DCOMs is... It's another world. I'm comfortably (laughs) out of my depth, though there were a couple theatrically released Disney movies this year, but they weren't exactly, um, they weren't exactly big. Well, I think also that I'm glad that you brought up some of the DCOMs that were being made around this time because DCOMs do have a direct influence on the movies that Disney releases theatrically. Uh We see that in the sequel to this movie, Princess Diaries 2, where Raven Simone is one of the side princesses because she was a huge deal 
on the Disney Channel. That's yeah. a raven. Like, that, it was a big deal. So they put her in there. And then we see that in this movie where the, you know, hottest boy in school is played by fucking Andy Brink Brinker, mm-hmm. which, like, at the time when this came out, like, he was the golden boy of the Disney Channel. Like, he... I'm, I'm not into him. I know you don't like him. You hate I his especially hair. especially hate his hair in this movie. <laughs> I hate, like, the hair of pretty much every boy in this movie. Yeah. So... He uh he was the the golden boy, and it wasn't until Zac Efron came by and kind of took over the reins. But he Eric Von Denton was big deal for Disney Channel. He was the heartthrob of Disney Channel. Uh, I'll, again, I'll take your word for it. I got, I got <laughs> nothing on this, but this is actually a really really interesting period when you look at uh, theatrically released films because something that had happened a few years prior to. 2001 was that the Rugrats got their first theatrically released movie. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you got that, you started to see a trend, particularly with Disney, where they were releasing not particularly well-made films into theaters of their cartoons. Um, You would see like Teacher's Pet. You'd see Doug's first movie, which I love original Doug. I do not like Disney Doug. Same. This year we got uh, Recess Schools Out and... I think that movie is actually pretty okay. I think uh, so too. I, I like a lot of the Recess properties. Yeah, I didn't really watch much Recess, but it was one of those ones where I was like, oh no, I actually do enjoy this. If I watched Disney Channel, I would have watched more of this. Mm-hmm. And the reason that you had that was because these were recognizable properties. They did not cost nearly as much, so the profit margin was theoretically higher. Mm-hmm. And because things like Rugrats or to a lesser degree, the Pokemon movie established that, hey, um, you can have these recognizable properties break a hundred million for animated films. Right. And the way that correlates with the downward trend of the theatrically released big budget Disney animated releases, it's it's very strange how they weirdly coincide. It almost dilutes the Disney brand mm-hmm. at a time when it did not need that. Because mm-hmm. you had things like a hundred million dollars being put into Atlantis the Lost Empire this year. Yeah. And don't get me wrong, I think Atlantis is fine. It has a big cult following. It's got some pacing issues mm-hmm. and some plot issues, mm-hmm. but I like the characters. It's very well done, but it did not really make money compared to how much they put into it. Right. So Disney kind of went live action in a way that they really properly had not done since probably the 70s. And that really is interesting when you see the success of The Princess Diaries because with the exception of maybe Amy Adams in Enchanted or the absolute last month of the last year of this decade with The Princess and the Frog being released, this is the quintessential Disney princess movie of the 2000s. I agree with you completely. And I would also argue that Tiana does fall into the next decade purely on accessibility because Mm -hmm. Princess and the Frog was released around... Like, they were trying to hit that Christmas market of 2009. So if you did not see this in theaters around Christmas, which that tends to be kind of like a rich people thing. Well, a lot of people didn't. It got buried by Avatar. Right. It got buried. And then it really picked up steam when it was available for home release and rental. So I would argue that Tiana kind of starts the 2010s. Mm -hmm. And I don't get me wrong. I love Amy Adams and I love Enchanted. Mm -hmm. Mia Thermopolis is the Disney princess of the 2000s. She yeah. is. She really is. And 
I I get her. I get the appeal of her mm-hmm. so much more than other Disney princesses, honestly. Okay, well, let's dive into it. Let's yeah. talk about Mia Thermopolis. What are your big takeaways from her? God, she is awkward, huh? But it's so endearing. Like, it and it is. doesn't feel like a, ha we made her awkward and weird. There's such a sincerity to her awkwardness. Do you wear contact lens? Well, I have them, but I don't really like to wear them that much. Now, you do. You broke my glasses. You broke my brush. Obviously, we did Mean Girls recently, and the kind of character that I think of when I think of Mia in worse hands is, remember remember the mathletes, and she looks across and sees the one awkward girl on the other team? Carolyn Craft, yes. Yeah. See, that is this kind of character in a different movie, mm-hmm. where they have, like, braces or a lot of nerd stereotypes for female characters, or, like, maybe they have acne and they show off too much teeth with braces, and just, like... like Let's run through the checklist of obvious shorthands to say this person's not pretty and not popular. Right. You know? But I do believe that Anne Hathaway is like one of those diamond in the rough, she's all that type characters. Mm-hmm. And it's not quite as jarring as the Not Another Teen Movie version where it's like, ponytail and glasses. Ugh. <laughs> this one, it's like, okay, she's got some giant hair that breaks brush and they clearly fluffed up her eyebrows a lot. And mm-hmm. It's really obvious in the close-ups that they just drew in more eyebrows. Uh-huh. But I think she's really endearing. This is one of those movies where you see a young star, like, like when we give tons of credit to Alicia Silverstone in The Crush for how much of a superstar she is in that wildly fucked up movie. Right. This is like that where you can just watch Anne Hathaway and go, yeah, no, she's a superstar. She gets mm-hmm. this. She's so comfortable. She's so believable. She's so likable. Mm-hmm. I get this character. Absolutely. I think Anne Hathaway, it, like because this is the movie that skyrocketed her career, mm-hmm. and as an 11-year-old watching this, I d- doubt that in my brain I was like, yeah, this is going to be one of the best actors that we're ever going to have. I don't think that ever crossed my mind, but watching it as an adult and knowing, yeah, she's going to go on to win Oscars and Mm -hmm. do these incredible performances and for a brief period of time be like one of the most hated actors for no goddamn reason. Because she was too perfect. Because she was too perfect. She's fantastic in this movie. The comedic timing is great. There's a lot of like small, subtle movements that she does. A lot of physical acting that you can tell these were her instincts and they were correct. Or She's that, wonderful. That moment that you pointed out while we were watching it where she slips and falls and everyone's just like, oh God. And she's just like, no, anyway, third point and just continues the scene. Yeah, because she slips in, in, in the rain and is giggling about it. And that was Anne Hathaway actually falling. It's one of the, whenever BuzzFeed does those lists of like moments that weren't scripted, like that always ends up on it. Mm-hmm. And they kept it in because Gary Marshall was like, no, that's who that character is. And also like Gary Marshall. Gary Marshall movies just always make me feel good. Even the ones that have like problematic elements, like they just make me feel good. I like Gary Marshall movies. What else has Gary Marshall done? Because I don't know offhand. <laughs> So a lot of people know Gary Marshall as an actor. Um, I guess for fans of this podcast, you would likely most well know him as 
the devil in Hocus Pocus. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's also Halloweeners. He's also the publishing head in Never Been Kissed. So whenever I say Gary Marshall and Harmony doesn't know who that is, I always say Hot Wieners because yeah. it immediately lets her know. I know exactly what that means because I'm not the best person with names. Yes, Harmony's quite terrible at it. We were actually over at the Bob's Big Boy in Los Angeles, which is across the street from the Gary Marshall Theater, mm-hmm. and we pointed it out, and Harmony's like, who's Gary Marshall? And everyone we were with was like, how the fuck do you not know who that is? And I went, hot wieners. And Harmony's like, ah, yeah, I know him. The game we play is, what does Harmony know this person from? Not their what best known roles. You have to scroll like 20 movies down on their IMDb <laughs> page before we go, oh, I know them from that. And you have to find something that likely played on cable a bunch of times. Yeah. <laughs> so yes, Gary Marshall was an actor, uh, but he was also... Also a really prolific director. Um, he did a ton of episodes of The Odd Couple. Um, he did like a lot of episodes of stuff like Laverne and Shirley and, and Happy Days as well. A lot of classic TV. Yes. But as far as movies are concerned, we've got Overboard, Beaches, Pretty Woman, <laughs> The Other Sister, Woo! Runaway Bride, Raising Helen, both of the Princess Bride movies, uh, George Rule, and then you get all of the big ensemble cast movies of Valentine's Day, New Year's Eve, and Mother's Day. Oh, those. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe mm-hmm. some of those earlier releases, I'm like, oh, I have a lot of fondness for all those. Like, Overboard literally gets by on pure charisma and likability. Oh, yeah. Because everything about it is wrong. And he was a prolific writer. He wrote a ton of stuff, obviously, for The Odd Couple as well, but also, like, The Dick Van Dyke Show and Happy Days and mm-hmm. The Fonz and Jody Loves Chachi. Like, all of that. He did so much stuff writing-wise, and Gary Marshall's just the best. I love Gary Marshall. I mean, he did. I, I, I do like his work when you lay it out like that. I'm like, <laughs> I like so many of these things. Yeah. And this movie. And he was in talks with Anne Hathaway and Julie Andrews to do a third princess diaries movie before he passed away so that you know put everything kind of on hiatus but both anne hathaway and julie andrews have both stated that they will come back to do a third movie um they just want the perfect script i would like that because i've not seen the second one but apparently that one's not as fond i i right yeah it's fine like, it, it's a sequel. That's the best way I can put it. Chris Pine's in it, and he's real cute and funny. Uh, there's a lot of fun things being said about the idea of women's obligations to being married. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some some interesting stuff being said there. But it doesn't have it doesn't have the charm that this one does. Okay. Maybe that's why it always felt like a direct-to-video sequel, even though it's not to me. Mm-hmm. Because it's just like, it's fine. It's a sequel. It's, you know, whatever. Right. Yeah, this one is just so wonderful for what it is. And mm-hmm. I think it, it is it is the strength of Anne Hathaway for sure and a lot of her character work. Yeah. But also I just think that the script is really solid. So it's based on the book of the same name by Meg Cabot, who also wrote the script for Ice Princess, another one of our all-time favorites. Yeah. But what I recently learned that I did not know that I found was really interesting is that the movie is why the book got published. Say what? <laughs> yeah. So because the movie turned 20 this year, there were a lot of retrospectives and interviews that were done. And there was one for Cosmopolitan that was the everything you didn't know oral history of the Princess Diaries, which uh-huh. was super helpful. And what had happened is Meg Cabot wrote the Princess Diaries gave her agent the manuscript, and they couldn't get any publishers interested. It was rejected like 25 or 30 times. Wow. Like Harry Potter numbers of rejection. And then her agent had the idea to send it to Hollywood producers instead, 
and it wound up in the hands of Whitney Houston, Aww. who produced this movie. So Whitney got it, loved it, was like, this is, this is amazing, and we want to make the movie, and got the film deal with Disney. So, of course, once that happens, it's like, oh, we got to get this book out. Mm-hmm. And so Cosmopolitan's talking to this producer, Deborah Chase, and she's talking about it. And she goes, at the time, the general wisdom of Hollywood is that if you made a movie for boys, girls would come, but you couldn't really make a movie for girls. But then a couple of years before, Disney did a little movie called The Parent Trap. Mm-hmm. And that solidified kind of, oh, there's an audience for girls. So then Gary Marshall signed on to direct, and all of the people at Disney wanted Julie Andrews if they could get her. And, you know, Julie Andrews at this point in her career was kind of in semi-retirement. Um, for those that don't know, Julie Andrews is, you know, she's fucking Mary Poppins. Yes. She's just a delight. Yeah, she's Maria in <laughs> the Sound of Music. She's a lot of wonderful things. Uh-huh. Julie Andrews also had to have very intense vocal surgery at one point for vocal nodes, and it kind of destroyed her singing voice. Mm-hmm. And that, I don't want to say like put her into retirement. I think it was just really hard for her. So she kind of went into retirement. Mm-hmm. But uh, they they had this idea of killing off the father character in the book to make a bigger role for the grandmother to make it more appealing for Julie Andrews. <laughs> Uh-huh. And it worked. All right. Which then. I think is really brilliant. And I I kind of like that. I know there's the running gag with Disney killing off dads and, you know, wicked stepmothers. Parents and, must die. Yeah, parents must Disney. die. I understand that. But also by making that choice, this movie then becomes about Mia and her grandmother. And I love that relationship. Like the grandchild grandparent relationship does not get explored a lot Mm-mm. in movies. And I think that it's very interesting, especially in this instance where the two of them are brought together by a character we never meet because he's passed on. And they're basically strangers. Yeah, and they're basically strangers. But then you have that sort of intrinsic love for one another. There's that beautiful moment when they're analyzing Mia to figure out how they're going to you know, make her a princess mm-hmm. and talking about her hair and her eyes and then – Julie Andrews acknowledges that her ears are the same as her father's, which is such a weird like body part to be like you have your father's ears, but there is this immediate glow that Anne Hathaway gives off where she's like, really? And it is so <laughs> sweet and wholesome and beautiful, and uh, I love it so very much. Yeah, I obviously we just talked about how great Anne Hathaway is in this movie, but honestly, I just love the whole cast, and I wouldn't want anyone in Grandma's role other than Julie Andrews because mm-hmm. she is just one of the most lovely people. <laughs> I know. Oh my God, she's wonderful. So uh, Meg Cabot in this interview goes, the you know the producer called me and they say we have to kill off the father from your book, and I asked why, and she goes, we want to have a bigger role for the grandmother because we've got this great actress who wants to play her. <laughs> And I said, who's the actress? It's Julie Andrews. And I was like, oh, my God, kill him. Kill the dad. (laughs) (laughs) I just, I love the honesty. So, I mean, they they found the the absolute perfect person to play the grandmother. Mm -hmm. Like, Julie Andrews is incredible in this role. She just feels regal. Yeah, I just, I genuinely can't think of anyone else who I'd want to play. Like, if this was... 
I don't know, maybe like a Meryl Streep type, but even then. Like, I don't know, Angela Lansbury? Maybe Angela Lansbury. Maybe. But there's something so. Judy Dench. <laughs> maybe, maybe Judy Dench. But there's something about Julie Andrews that just exudes class and mm-hmm. kindness. Like and there's it, something in her face. <laughs> and it feels very, uh, very honest. Like the thing yeah. that you commented on when we watched it was. You know, I totally believe that that is 100% the first time Julie Andrews has ever eaten a corn dog. Right. If somebody That just feels right. Yeah, if somebody would have been like, this is this scene is great because Julie Andrews has never had a corn dog before. I'd be like, you know what? I believe that. Mm-hmm. I totally believe that because there's just this <laughs> wonderment about her when she takes that bite. It's just, it's beautiful. Um, and then in terms of finding Mia, this I think is really interesting. So the producers... We're looking at people like January Jones okay. and Scarlett Johansson mm. and like these people who already sort of had like an established career. Emmy Rossum was another one. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there was Anne Hathaway and Anne Hathaway was, you know, nowhere near as big as any of the other people, but they all fell in love with her immediately. And they were mm-hmm. like, that's that's her. She's she's good. They're they're just wonderful. Why on earth would you pick me to be your princess? Since your father died, you are the natural heir to the throne of Genovia. That's our law. I'm royal by marriage. You are royal by blood. You can rule. Rule? Oh, no. Oh, no. No, no, no. Now you have really got the wrong girl. I never lead anybody. Not at, not at brownies. Not at campfire girls. Um... Queen Clarice, my expectation in life is to be invisible, and I'm good at it. And I'm just really glad that this is a movie that was willing to take that risk on a relative unknown because they knew she was the best one for the role. I think that's something that's kind of getting lost a lot these days. Mm-hmm. Um, like, obviously, we have not seen it, but He's All That was recently released. Spoiler alert, we're doing it for the show. But I know one of the big criticisms that it's been getting is that the lead is Addison Ray, who is a TikTok influencer and star. She's not an actress. Mm-hmm. And it does kind of worry me in this age of algorithms that a lot of our bigger movies and especially a lot of our teen movies, they're not casting who's best for the role. They're casting under the assumption that this person has a built-in audience and is guaranteed to make them money. Mm-hmm. And I understand the decision behind that. I I understand also like piracy is a thing. I I get all of that. But as somebody who also makes movies, it breaks my soul to know how much of a priority that has become. Yeah, um, I think about that, and I, I realize I come for Disney every time we do a Disney movie or an animated movie or really any circumstance where I can come for this company because I think that they do so many terrible things. But this is also coming out in a period where Disney's kind of having to experiment and do different things because obviously we're years now removed from the Disney Renaissance, which... What you had during that period was Disney stepping away from people who could do voice acting and now going for established name stars. Yeah. And that's a trend that really hasn't stopped. You now have 
that there's so much less of a window for anyone who can do voice acting. And now it's just about like, man, look at this really impressive voice cast. Um, like this isn't Disney, but I remember growing up, one of the first films that I recognized just marketing it as an animated movie with a really impressive ensemble cast was something like Robots. Robots and Shark Tale are the two that I think of. Yeah, which those are obviously DreamWorks, and that's because they were, I guess, haha, the pun because Shark Tale, like big, big fish in a in a small pond. They, yeah, Disney is obviously that, and they have to then compete, and you know they use star power to get there. But yeah, there's definitely become certainly since Disney has pretty much become unstoppable with their streaming service and the acquisition of so many other things, they can just kind of coast off of what algorithms and proven trends do. Mm-hmm. And I honestly think that Disney's its most interesting when it has to take these chances during down periods. Like the 80s is a weird period for Disney because they were floundering and it was cool and interesting. Or this period where they're trying different stuff. And yeah, okay, Atlantis didn't work. Treasure Planet didn't work. But they tried and that's that's interesting to see from them, which they they put out good stuff, but they don't have to try anymore. They're sitting comfortably right. on their golden throne <laughs> with Mickey Mouse ears, and it's it's fine. But no, this they would have never taken a chance on someone like Anne Hathaway now. No, I, I, I agree completely. I think maybe because they had like Whitney Houston and Gary Marshall, mm-hmm. that could say something because they, you know, obviously wield some serious power. I think Julie Andrews being on the cover was a selling point for them. I think so too. Absolutely. And that cover is so iconic too. Mm-hmm. Just the the princess crown with the headphones and the sunglasses. Like mm-hmm. it's magnificent. One Does she wear sunglasses at any point in this movie? The beach. <laughs> and when she's driving. It makes her seem like she's got more attitude, but she totally doesn't. <laughs> Yeah, I I love I love that cover art so much. Mm-hmm. So I do find that like a really interesting choice, and I, I I really find the casting in this movie to be interesting as well because we have obviously Anne Hathaway, we have our go to Disney boy with Eric Von Denton, mm-hmm. we have Mandy Moore. Yep. Who Mandy Moore was? You know, they were really pushing for her to be this big bubblegum pop star, but then she gets cast in A Walk to Remember, and people are like, oh, wait, she's really good at acting. Mm -hmm. And Mandy Moore has had a pretty interesting acting career, and I love that somebody who was pushed so heavily as being like, like her big single is Candy, Mm -hmm. and it's very sweet and bubblegummy, but she plays Mean Girls so well. Yeah. Between uh, like this and Hillary Faye and Saved. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And I think it's because. That's the thing. She's playing the same kind of character that she plays in other things. It's just framed to make her look evil. You know, she's saying yeah. she's playing the same kind of Christian girl as she is in A Walk to Remember, but it's framed differently. It's a different world that that's existing in. And that also translates to this exact kind of mean girl here. She's a secular mean girl. So what's. Because I, I definitely had this a little bit backwards because A Rock to Remember is actually 2002. So th- Oh, so it's after. Yeah, so that's after. So this, I think, was just like, you know, pop star. We're going to have her sing Stupid Cupid at the at the beach. But, like, she proved that she can act. She's very good and oh, yeah. has great timing. But, yeah, that casting in A Walk to Remember is what I think. Well, it's a starring role. It's yeah. a starring role. And it, like, it pivoted her into, you know, kind of the career that she has now. Mm-hmm. But I love her as Lana. God, she's so awful. She's so awful. And there, there's a moment in this movie that I use to relate to my own life constantly. 
And it's when she's being interviewed by the, the news reporters after it's been outed that Mia is a princess. And an interviewer is asking her, like, well, do you think, uh, like, would you consider you and Mia best friends? And she's like, I would. We go shopping together. We get our hair done. You know, we finish each other's sentences. And she she's bullshitting mm-hmm. because she wants the five minutes of fame of, like, yeah, I'm friends with, with the princess. Because that's something that I went through when I went back to my hometown after I was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Mm-hmm. The amount of people who made my life a living hell in high school tried to act like we were good friends or would come up to me like, oh my gosh, yeah, I'm here with my husband. I can't believe, I've been praying for you. And I'm like, you fucking hated me. You're doing this to try to make yourself look good in front of people who don't know the truth about this situation. Fuck off. Uh-huh. So when I see that scene in the Princess Diaries, I'm just like, oh. Oh, that's a special brand of being an asshole, and it's good. This is a pre-social media clout chaser type? Yeah. This is the way that you would do it, is you would get your five minutes of fame, like, by pulling big stunts or, you know, whatever you could, because, yeah, social media wasn't really a thing yet. And then you also have that, that leads to, like, a really, really interesting part of this movie that, in hindsight, is so much more poignant, Mm -hmm. which is... The people who are so mean to Mia before she's a princess use her and weaponize the paparazzi against her, you know, to make themselves famous, to get on the the newspaper, whatever. Mm -hmm. But this is 2001, and this is when we are about to enter the years that have led us to what we now know as, like, hashtag free Britney. Mm -hmm. Because we have the paparazzi chasing Mia around blasting her on the front page of the paper, calling her like a party girl because this the scenario has been manipulated by people who are just out to harm her because it'll make for good news. Yeah, and I was absolutely aghast at that beach scene where they're like, no, change in here, it's okay. And then they like expose her to all these paparazzi people. She's 15. She's naked and a teenager and that's like mondo illegal. Mm-hmm. So later you have grandma who's just like, oh, well, we'll try and do damage control. I'm like, or you could just like fucking sue them. Right. Like you can come for all their heads. Which is one of those things where it's like this movie is 20 years old and all of us watched that scene as 11-year-olds and we're like, oh, no, they got her in, in her towel. What a bummer. That's such a mean thing for them to do. And now as an adult, you're like, they committed a crime. Mm-hmm. They were trying to photograph like a 15-year-old girl naked, just like, mm, can we get that nipple? Please, please, just one of these flash bulbs catch a nipple. Right, like just, oh, my gosh. And it's so wild to think about. Like, that was such an acceptable form of culture at the time. Why do we culturally think it's okay for grown adults to stalk teenagers to get pictures of I them? I don't understand Why is that it? okay if it's your job? Like, I, I don't understand it. And, like, there are definitely reasons why I love Jennifer Garner so much. Because Jennifer <laughs> Garner has pushed for a lot of legislation to protect the children of celebrities or underage celebrities because there's this weird thing where people are like, oh, well, you're a celebrity, therefore you're fair game. And it's like, they're still children mm-hmm. and Mia Thermopolis is 15 she's a child she gets in trouble for driving without a license like mm-hmm. come on um but yeah that was just a thing I think people didn't 
recognize or process at the time because it had been so normalized by our culture in the 2000s. The amount of times where people were putting photos of like Lindsay Lohan, who was like 18 or 19, and it's like out of control, Lindsay not wearing underwear in the car. And it's like, mm-hmm. why is that on the front page of a magazine? Yeah. Yeah, so Princess Diaries is very ahead of its time in its commentary, and I especially love that they do show Julie Andrews kind of having that immediate freak out of blaming her, mm-hmm. and it's only after having the conversation with Joe, who is great, um, being like, hey, I think you're being really harsh on your grand- on your granddaughter, and she talks to Mia about it and apologizes and holds herself accountable mm-hmm. and is like... I was reacting off of instinct and I blamed you and I didn't actually get the full story of what was going on and I'm sorry. And mm-hmm. I I love that. There's there's a lot of accountability in this movie. Yeah, is that one of the things you love the most about it? That is one of the things that I love the most about this movie is the accountability because don't okay. This also leads to Lily Moskowitz, who if you are a member of our Patreon when we did our episode on our favorite like side characters, Lily was my number one. Mm-hmm. And a big reason Lily is my number one is because of the accountability. I've read the threads that are like, Lily's actually a terrible friend and she judges her hair and she judges this and blah, blah, blah. And she only wants her to be on her you know, talk show. I've read them. I understand them. You are not viewing Lily Moskowitz as a full human being. You are judging her solely off of the knee-jerk reactions of a 15-year-old. I mean, it was my knee-jerk reaction to be like, wow, Lily, you're being a bitch in this limo right now. And that's and the I was thing. like, BJ, why do you like her? She's so mean. She's making her cry. And here's why I like Lily. In that scene, is she being mean and being yeah. really harsh? Yeah, she is. But when you look at it from the perspective that Lily's best friend in the whole world, the two of them are outcasts in their school. They really only have each other. Mm-hmm. And because Mia can't tell her what's going on, All she's seeing is, my friend is bailing on me. My friend is keeping secrets from me. My friend is not communicating with me. And now my friend is looking like the very people who have made our lives hell and there's no reasoning behind it. What is happening? She's trying to assimilate. Right. And that's what it feels like. It's like you're trying to assimilate and you're you're not talking about this. I feel like I'm losing my best friend. I don't know what's happening. When that happens, Lily is like, she's lashing out. She's like, I don't know who you are anymore. Look at this bag you have. Because, you know, Lily's a big activist. And, mm-hmm. you know, to some extent, so is Mia. This could feed a whole third world country. Which, I mean, obviously that's that's a bit much. But yes, the, but... Point, the point is made. <laughs> yes. And she's reacting accordingly. So she's upset and she's lashing out. Teenagers lash out and say things they don't mean. The difference in a movie like The Princess Diaries versus something like Mean Girls Mm -hmm. is Lily lashes out and says some awful shit, but then she owns that later and she not only apologizes, but she names what she did wrong and explains why she did it. Mm -hmm. Like she's talking to Mia when they're on the roof and she's like, I'm sorry I yelled at you. I thought I was losing my best friend. The green-eyed monster of jealousy came out to me and I'm sorry. This is what I was doing. This is what I was feeling And I shouldn't have talked to you that way. Mm -hmm. That is such a healthy way of presenting girl friendships in high school because this sort of thing happened all the time growing up where two friends would get in a fight. They would say something super shitty and harsh because you're hormonal and you you don't have the the understanding of like how bad something like that is going to hurt somebody until after you've already hurt them. Mm -hmm. 
But in other movies, it's usually just like, so are we still friends? Yeah, we're still friends. And then they move on with it. Princess Diary is like, no, we're going to sit here and we're going to talk about it and we're going to explain what's going on and we're going to hold ourselves accountable and we're going to name the harm that we caused. Mm -hmm. And like, no movie does that. Yeah, and I think that that's really emblematic of like male writing versus female writing. I agree. What's what's the old classic thing of like every stand-up comedian with no good material? Just like, man, men and women sure are different. I get into a fight with my wife, and all I know is I fucked up. So I go in there and go, baby, I'm sorry that I did something. Because they don't know what they did wrong. Right. So we just like, oh, I said sorry. Let's glaze over all of this now. Right. So that's why Lily is such a great friend, because... Even at her harshest and most critical, she holds herself accountable and owns the fact that she was being harsh and that her friend did not deserve that, Mm -hmm. while at the same time also recognizing, hey, here's what happened that got me to that point. And that's so important. That's such an important message to send to young kids. And this is a movie that really resonated with a lot of young kids. Love to see communication. We love to see communication, especially in our friendships. We, we talk about them a lot in, in terms of romance movies, but we don't see it a lot in friendship. Mm-hmm. So it, it just really, really is something that makes me happy. And I also love that Lily is somebody who is very proud of her friend. And I've seen people criticize and accuse Lily of being selfish, of like, oh, she just wanted... Mia to be a princess so that she'd come on her cable access show. That's not entirely true. She wants her friend to be on her cable access show and now has a really cool opportunity and excuse as to why she can come on the show. Mm -hmm. Is there a little bit of, hey, this will help me? Of course, because that's just human nature. But more importantly, she wants her friend to be a princess because she knows that it's good for her. And she knows that her friend is finally getting the chance to have a position of power to enact real change, something that the two of them would never be able to do, mm-hmm. like from their from their perspective as fifteen year olds, they're like, you can actually do that. That's amazing. This is great for you, knowing full well that that means her best friend, the only person she has at school, with the exception of like Jeremiah, is going to have to move away, and she's not going to get to see her other than in the summers. That's a good fucking friend. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. And we're actually getting to a point now where I think 15-year-olds are getting the platforms in in order to enact change. They are. And that's both a good thing and a terrifying thing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's both things. But I think that... Theoretically, because we'll definitely get into a conversation about, like, royal families and stuff later, I assume. Mm-hmm. Theoretically... These are the good guys of Genovia as opposed to the bad guys with really fabulous eyebrows and wicked bitch faces. Yeah, Bonnie Aarons as the Baroness, who for those that don't know who Bonnie Aarons is, she's the fucking nun, Mm -hmm. like super spooky conjuring nun. Mm -hmm. She's the Baroness (laughs) trying to take over Genovia. She's amazing. I love her so much. Mm -hmm. She barely says anything, if she says anything. But her face. But her face. Uh. Ugh. So yeah, (laughs) love her. I love her to death. You can just look at her face and go, that's a villain. And that's the thing I love about Bonnie Aarons is she has very much made a career out of, I know what people think when they see me and I'm leaning into it. Mm -hmm. And I love people who do that. She's like, yeah, I have no problem playing this mean ass Baroness. I have no problem playing a haunted nun. Let's Mm -hmm. do it. I'm like, you're the best. Yeah. So theoretically, we can look at them and just determine that those are the bad guys. Right. So 
there is a good committee of good people like Joe and Grandma, and they're all going to help her with this country. So mm-hmm. she's got her good ideals and like a good support system. And theoretically, this is good for the for the country. Yes. I like that something that is continually brought up is, is she ready? Can she do this? Because Mia doesn't feel very confident. She's very unsure of herself. She doesn't feel like this is something that she's well suited for. But they can all see, no, you're a good person and you're mm-hmm. a caring person and you have empathy and you do want what's best to make things better, mm-hmm. that's an important attribute to a ruler. You're not going to abuse your position. Correct. Which is, you know, these fucking Rocky and Bullwinkle villains would. <laughs> they really are. <laughs> then I wondered how I'd feel after abdicating my role as princess of Genovia. Would I feel relieved? Or would I feel sad? And then I realized... How many stupid times a day I use the word I. In fact, probably all I ever do is think about myself. And how lame is that when there's like 7 billion other people out there on the planet? And when... Sorry, sorry, I'm going too fast. But then I thought, if I cared about the other 7 billion out there instead of just me, that's probably a much better use of my time See, if I were princess of Genovia, then my thoughts and the thoughts of people smarter than me would be much better heard. And just maybe those thoughts could be turned into actions. Um, But that's something that I find really endearing about this as well, is they don't want Mia to change who she is. They want to polish who she already is. Mm -hmm. And kind of bring out that best version of her, which I think they do quite successfully. Uh, Isn't that the whole point of the Larry Miller makeover? Yes. Larry Miller playing almost outside of his normal role. Yeah, he's playing like... uh, He's still Larry Miller. He's he's just just a little more effeminate and with an accent now. Yeah, now he has an Italian accent, which I also love that his name is Paolo. Because I don't know what Disney has against Paolo's because between Paolo in this movie, so he's the one who outs Mia as being a princess to the mm-hmm. press because he wants the attention for her amazing transformation. Mm-hmm. But then also Paolo's the bad guy in the Lizzie McGuire movie and he's also an Italian scumbag. I don't know. Disney was just like, what name can we use for Italian scumbags? Paolo. That's the name we're going with. Let's just reach into our hat of four Italian names and see which one we're going <laughs> to end up with today. But I, th- I think that's the whole point of Larry Miller's makeover is just like, oh, no, there's good there's good stuff here. We're just going to clean clean up some of these rough edges. Right. And obviously there's plenty to be said about, you know, she was fine the way she is. She didn't need to pluck her eyebrows. She was fine. That's we hated a curly standard. hair back then. Yeah, we, we hated curly hair in the 2000s. So I understand why they straightened it. But also, as you pointed out, um, when she gets caught in the rain and her hair is still straight, that tells you that. Her hair was never meant to be that big and curly. Nope. (laughs) So it's like, ah, yes, big curly hair. That's supposed to be unattractive. I'm like, I think it's great. It just needs to be styled better. Which we did not know how to do that. Hell no. (laughs) We did not know what to do with Caucasian curls in the 2000s. No, no, we did not. But yeah, whatever. (laughs) I I think when the makeover reveal happens, um, Paolo went a little too heavy on the makeup. He went a little too heavy on that blush. I was like, BJ, what's making this too extra? Is it the blush? And you're like, yeah. I'm like, it's... 
it's a lot. The blush ages her immediately. But I we also couldn't tell, like, does the blush age her that much? Or is it just that it gave her the face that she still has now? Because mm-hmm. Anne Hathaway really has not aged since She's then. Aged beautifully. But my favorite part of that is you go, yeah, that's how we did our makeup back then when we were like 12. Yep, we all did. <laughs> we learned a lot of things from watching this movie. We were like, oh, we need to put blush on the apples of our cheeks and pull it all the way back into our hairline. Perfect. <laughs> Paolo's over here doing like a weak ass drag look. Kind of. It's not refined. No. He's trying. You got to start somewhere. <laughs> but no, that, that was kind of like the high glam early 2000s. That was very much the trend. Mm-hmm. So it was it was where it was supposed to be at the time. Mm-hmm. Definitely got that Bobby Brown makeup book, and that was the look in it because I had that book too. I just like that there's no um, like brown lip liner. Mm-hmm. That that's a look from that era that I'm glad did not make its way onto the screen for this movie. I am too. <laughs> Instead, she got that like very nice, like blushy rose lip gloss that looked a little bit too sticky because that's yeah. how we made lip gloss then. Yeah. <laughs> We continued to make lip gloss too sticky for at least a decade past this. Yeah. it's We're finally getting lip gloss that isn't a nightmare to work with. Yeah. We're that's getting that's there. tight. <laughs> I haven't worn lip gloss in a long time. I'm more of a chapstick person. Yeah. So take what you will out of that for my sexuality. But, you know, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so we talked about Lily's reaction to the makeover and how she's really averse to it because it feels like Mia is going against her being and, you know, trying to fit in and going all A-crowd on her. Mm -hmm. We haven't talked about Lily's brother Michael yet and Michael's reaction and Michael just in general. I love Michael as a love interest. I think he's there. (laughs) He's kind of a (laughs) non-issue for the most part. (laughs) I think that's why I like him. Because it's not about him. Yeah. He's, he just is there. He's just, he's orbits the plot. Like, the love interest to him is really not important to this movie. Like, you could cut it and very little would change. Agreed completely. And <laughs> maybe that's why I like it so much. Because I it's like so, boys when we don't focus on them. It's so non-invasive and it's so non-essential to the plot. And also he has the best haircut of any of the teen boys in this movie. Robert Schwartzman does have a great head of hair. But then again, the entire Schwar- like Schwartzman family has a great head of hair. Mm-hmm. As do the Coppolas. Like th- that whole family tree is great hair. You Italians and your thick hair. Yeah, that's pretty thick. <laughs> I have half a shaved head and my hair is still thick. Yeah. Um, But yes, I like Michael a lot as a character because he does offer a little bit of balance to Lily, who is a lot, Mm -hmm. um, but I love that about her. So he does offer that balance. He's very chill. But also, Michael is the character who represents a really nice through line for Mia because he liked her before she was a princess. Her being a princess did not change how he viewed her, how he felt toward her. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a really important thing to show. Because obviously when Lily finds out that Mia's a princess, her immediate reaction is to freak out in excitement. Mm-hmm. And then she immediately apologizes. I'm sorry, I was harsh. <laughs> um, which I think is a very appropriate reaction. Whereas Michael's like, oh, okay, well that's a thing that I need to deal with now, but that doesn't change the fact I still have a crush on my sister's best friend because Mm -hmm. I think she's wonderful and we have similar interests and I like her. Mm -hmm. And when he's upset about her missing his his gig, he's not upset because like, oh no, the princess missed my gig. It's, 
oh, but I like her and she missed my gig. <laughs> and that's very sweet to me. I think that that's very lovely. And uh, spoiler alert, Michael does not come back for the sequel. Oh, no. <laughs> Sorry, he's he's not there, which is why we get the angle with Chris Pine. But I like that Michael sort of represents that person in high school who doesn't last, is not the one that you end up with. Most don't. But they mean a lot to you at the time. And it's okay for them to mean a lot to you at the time. And that's really lovely. He's a good foot pop boyfriend. He is. He's a good foot pop boyfriend. He's that that first moment that you have where you kiss somebody and it feels magical and, oh my gosh, wow, you can really feel this way about another person or another person can make you feel this way. Mm-hmm. I like that. I think that that's very sweet. And obviously that message comes from the the canon of the Princess Diaries be, because Michael doesn't come back. But even at the end of the movie, they they share that kiss, but that's not the end of the movie. The end of the movie is not they kissed and it's happily ever after. The end of the movie is a party. Mm-hmm. They have their kiss outside and that's sweet and lovely and wonderful, but then they go inside and it's the community. It's the people they've built together. It's all of them sharing that moment together as a group of both, you know, Mia's friends and her family and all of these diplomats mm-hmm. and merging those two worlds together. And that, sa- it seems so small, but the impact I think that has is really powerful mm-hmm. because ultimately at the end of the day, it's not about Michael. No, it's also not about either or. Yeah. It's about and. And, you know, we, we have this beautiful party and then it's her on the private plane and she's writing about getting to to go have the coronation and mm-hmm. go see the country for the first time. And it's this great thing. But then she's also acknowledging Lily and Michael are going to come here in the summers. So that's cool. Yeah. And I love that. I love that this boy that is this r- romantic subplot is not the end-all be-all of the story. The end-all be-all of the story is Mia and her future and what that means for the people of Genovia. Yeah. Also, like, you know, in Juno, where Juno talks about how Polly Bleeker is like, oh, his breath tastes like Tic Tacs. Mm-hmm. Do you think his breath tastes like M&M's? And pizza. I think that's a lot less nice, especially <laughs> together. Yeah. It's a lot less refreshing yeah, than right? the orange Tic Tacs. Mm, mm, no, <laughs> not really. Mm. Like when they open that pizza, mm-hmm. ugh. I know it's supposed to be sweet, but ugh. It's symbolism. He also it's eats, the gesture. He eats M&Ms off of his dirty keyboard, his dirty yeah. hands. Like it's going to get all your sweat and gunk. I also do like that scene cracks me up because one, I'm like, kind of ew. Two, I'm like, it'd be really hard to play that and not crush all of those M&Ms. They're just going to get in your keyboard and then ruin it. (laughs) But I like that they show that he has kind of like groupie fans Mm -hmm. of like. He's a boy in a band. He's he can play. He fixes cars. He plays in a band. He's so hot. And. He's like, yeah, I'm not interested in these people. I, I like Mia. Mm-hmm. I like this girl with huge hair and huge eyebrows. And a busted car. And a busted Mustang. <laughs> so, yeah, he Michael's a good boy. I agree. He, he can go in our in our group of good boys and teens in yeah. teen movies. Our, our small pool of good boys. Mm-hmm. He gets to, he gets to join the pool. <laughs> yeah. Good boys chilling in a hot tub. Five feet apart because it's a pandemic. <laughs> Oh, so 
something you had brought up earlier that I wanted to revisit is this idea of royal royalty and royal family and just the response to the royals yeah. in America. Yeah, I I don't know truly if it's entirely Disney's fault, but I'm going to point a big finger at them for why we have this obsession with princesses and royal family in a country that does not have those. I think it's a combination, yes, of Disney and then also how beloved Princess Diana was and especially the way that she died. Mm -hmm. I think that is really kind of what lit the flame of America's obsession into the royal family. Cue Candle in the Wind, 97, the best-selling song of all time. Uh I think aside from like White Christmas. (laughs) Yeah. But I don't, I don't, I don't understand. Do you you know why we're so interested in this? Because despite us being a country that as a whole, the loudest people are like, freedom, we we threw your tea in the harbor and we don't need Big Ben because we wake up at the sound of the eagle's caw and all of these whatever patriotism things you would see on the back of like a Ford F-150 on the highway. Why is it that like one of the biggest viewing experiences anytime it happens is like a royal wedding? Why, why, why do we have this thing of like having our cake and eating it too in this country where we're like, we don't like this, except we do, because look at it, the pageantry. I think it's exactly that. I think it's the pageantry. It's something that we do not have. So it feels like, ooh, exotic, mm-hmm. even though it's fucking like the UK. But there's something regal and otherworldly about it because we don't have it that people naturally are drawn to it because it's different and it's it's very lavish and it's big. It, I feel like it's the same reason why the same people, myself included, who will talk about how we need to tax billionaires and we need better distribution of wealth, will also obsessively look at everything at the Met Gala mm-hmm. um, because it's just larger than life and there's something so fascinating about it because it feels like uh, it feels like another world like i will never be anywhere near this or close to it or have any sort of introduction to it Mm -hmm. so being able to observe it is really really cool and beautiful it's the same reason why we're so obsessed with red carpets no, that makes sense. And probably that the closest thing we have to a first family, uh, I mean, the funny answer is the Kardashians. <laughs> but the correct answer is probably like the first family anytime we have that. And that mm-hmm. looks so sterile in comparison to like the royal family. Because it's like, look, they're wearing plain block colors on a lawn. Yay. Well, it's because we we don't, we have like such a weird relationship with that in the US because For example, AOC was on the cover of, I think, like Vogue or Vanity Fair or something. And people, especially the right, immediately criticized that suit she's wearing is, you know, $10,000 and that bracelet Mm -hmm. is worth blah, blah, blah. And she's the one who's talking about how we need to be paying more in taxes and, you know, free healthcare and free whatever. And one, people had to explain, she doesn't actually own that. That's, Mm -hmm. they, they rent it for the shoot, calm down. But because that is the mentality that surrounds politicians, if the first family is lavish and luxurious, then they're 
they get shit on. Mm-hmm. Um, but also at the same time, if they are of the people and they're like Bernie Sanders, they're then schleppy. they're they're schleppy and they're unprofessional and blah blah blah, which is really annoying. Like there's no winning. Whereas I just want to criticize the royal family because they suck. <laughs> they really do. Like that that's all I want to do. <laughs> <laughs> but then like you look at something like the royal family where everything is just exquisite and expensive and unattainable standards people are fascinated by it and we're allowed to be fascinated by it because it doesn't directly impact us that's true if uh, our first lady was wearing stuff that like kate middleton was wearing people would be furious but we're not overseas so it doesn't affect us so yeah you want to wear this crazy dress do it go for it wear that big hat yeah, and also I think when you look at Europe as a whole, there is significantly more history than you have here because we don't really value it. It's just like, oh, this building's old. Let's tear it down and build right. a new one as opposed to there where it's like, this is an 800-year-old building. Look how pristine it is. Mm-hmm. And I mean, obviously this is all like fucking just Eurocentric history-based stuff that's usually rooted in Catholicism and lots of other horrible things. Mm-hmm. But there is a certain elegance to the way that architecture and events are presented in in a European culture as opposed to like American and oh, I think yeah. that that's probably what's so appealing that's why people go to Paris because it's so beautiful that's why people go and visit the Louvre and go stand near Big Ben and wherever these various tourist attractions you would see on a postcard might be in Europe you know we don't have that's like look we have some faces in a mountain that we stole Mm-hmm. Look, we have a big white plain pillar. It's like we don't have nearly as much interesting things to look at in the same sense that they do. It's like we we're almost minimalism versus their stuff, which is ridiculously ornate. It's like a like a Fabergé carousel. <laughs> well, also I think a big part of it is that American education is so American centric mm-hmm. that people in America for the most part, by and large, don't know shit about shit when it comes to royal families and the legacies of royalty and monarchies. And, and like, we, we just don't. We mm-hmm. don't have the education, which is why when we have the scene where Mia accidentally crashes the car into the trolley, mm-hmm. they're able to get out of it by Julie Andrews basically... Just making shit up. Just making like, shit up. I'm going up. to knight you with this parking brake. And, and she doesn't even knight them. She just acts as if they're, you know, royal and then invites them to the ball. Yeah. <laughs> like, and I, I love the scene where she's about to give the speech to be like, hey, Mia doesn't want to be the princess. And they see her and they wave at her and she just goes, oh, hello. And then keeps going without <laughs> missing a beat. It's like, yeah, you get this. You're, you're a great ruler. You know how to handle this situation. Mm-hmm. But she's able to do that because... <laughs> Like there's even she says something like, you know, she makes up the the royal order of the rose based on the road. And Mia goes, oh, ooh, ooh. And then everyone just follows it. And they're like, oh, I guess that must be a big deal. Because, again, they don't know shit about it. Like she's Mm -hmm. making it up and people are just accepting it as fact because we don't know things about other cultures in America because we don't learn about them. No, we don't. I think I've mentioned it, I'm sure, a million times on the podcast already but i think about like oh i learned about world history and social studies and whatever and god we learned about the same four things every year mm-hmm. one of which was world war ii for nine weeks mm-hmm. every year mm-hmm. it's 
So it's like, wow, there's other things we could have learned about, but instead we have to learn about how we used to like the French, but not anymore because they don't believe in Iraq. So we have freedom fries now. Oh my gosh, yes. That's another thing too, especially with this movie coming out in 2001. Like we really, really get into a xenophobic era era after this movie. Oh, we wouldn't have been xenophobic towards Genovia. Yeah, that's true. There's white people there. Yeah, it's like a nice little quaint white country. Yeah, you're right. Okay, good point. With payers, struggling payers. Ooh, payers, yay. Payers, shout out to all the payers. It's got a a royal castle that's just small enough to be quaint, but not too (laughs) much to look lavish. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's that's a very, very good point. So I, I take back my statement. <laughs> <laughs> and I also love that because Genovia is not a real country, you can sort of make up your own rules around its importance because you have the big dinner scene and she takes the bite of the palate cleanser, not realizing that it's frozen and starts making sounds and flapping her hands. And then mm-hmm. people start imitating her because, oh, well, she's royal. So we we, we should be like her because she's clearly got the right idea because she's uh-huh. the royal one. And that's really funny to me because I think that that's a real thing that people do. Probably. I don't know. You don't understand other people's culture. So you just go, oh, I'm just going to assume this is correct. Mm-hmm. You know what you're doing. You know You know your life better than I do. Well, yeah, we do that when we're around people in power, regardless if they're royal or if they're just the most popular person in school. They're laughing, so we have to laugh. I saw Katie Heron buying army pants and flip-flops, so I bought army pants and Mm flip-flops. Like, it all comes full circle. Like, it's it's the the same way that we treat celebrity or like, oh, like the fact that the fucking Kardashians, like, because you mentioned the Kardashians being, you know, the American royal family or whatever. But, like, they completely set a standard of beauty that exists now. Mm-hmm. Like, makeup artists, like, they're they're copying what the Kardashians are doing, and that has become the standard of beauty. Or we talk about how we are children of the 90s and the 2000s, where heroin chic was obviously a big thing that was valued, mm-hmm. as were huge boobs because of, like, Pam Anderson and, and Jenna Jameson. Anna Nicole Smith. And Anna Nicole Smith Icon. as well. Um, so yeah, boobs were like the high priority to the point where you get all of these movies from the 90s and the 2000s where it's like, oh my God, my ass is so big. Oh my God, I have such a fat ass. Oh my God, it's terrible. And now in a 2020 world, it's ass, 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 ass all the yeah. time. And it's because that standard was set because we decided that the Kardashians were the peak and then everything has followed suit to, to try to match that. Wake up, sheeple. <laughs> Stop following the herd. Oh, God. But, like, I, that, that's such an interesting thing to me. And I like examining in in this movie that it's celebrity culture under the guise of royalty. Mm-hmm. And we get, quite possibly, the greatest character performance in the entire movie, which is Sandra Oh as Vice President uh. Gupta. She does so much with her little screen time. She's incredible. <laughs> I'm not going to read from it, but there is an article on Refinery29 talking about how the best part of the movie is Sandra O. Oh. And I kind of can't disagree with it mm-hmm. because every moment she has, she's perfect. Mm-hmm. And she did become a, a viral TikTok trend of just the Gupta. Mm-hmm. 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 The queen is coming. <laughs> like It's so amazing <laughs> that delivery is perfect i don't know what accent she's doing in this movie but i love I it i don't either i have no idea but just everything about it just hello lily lily's friend like <laughs> she, sandra owes the best she's so good she's at this wonderful 
And it's it's a movie filled with a lot of that because I know we talked about Larry Miller earlier. You know we we talked a little bit about Joe, but all, Joe has a great dry sense of humor. He's fantastic, um, but all of like the side characters in this movie are really fun. And while some of them can be a little bit cartoony, they never feel hokey. Uh, like the the woman who just exists to do cheerleading stunts, but I don't think has a name. Yeah, the short-haired girl who does cheerleading stunts. Yeah, it's like, I'm going to do a backbend, and I'm going to do the splits, and it's just going to keep cutting to me as I do weird poses. And I'm like, y- do you have a point in this movie? <laughs> <laughs> nope. She's just there to look cool. <laughs> yeah, there's there's just a lot of really wonderful things. This movie, it's just so well-rounded, I guess is a way to put it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's obviously major criticism that we have with every movie from this era. It's white as fuck. Well, of course. Like, yeah, that's a given and it's frustrating, but it's a given. Well, especially like a San Francisco Catholic school from the Mm -hmm. looks of it based Mm -hmm. on the uniforms. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I also, because, you know, the only one we get really is like Fontana Mm -hmm. and she's a mean girl. Mm -hmm. And I feel like she's there because her name rhymes with the rest of the, Popular girls like it's fucking Heather's. Yeah, she's the uh, she's the black best friend that we would see a lot during this time. Yeah, yeah. So that's obviously a, a major criticism, but just as far as this movie as a whole, there's so much good in it, and it just feels good to watch it. Mm-hmm. I think Mia's arc as well of sort of juggling the difficulty of learning where you fit in the world, but also understanding what that position means. But I think the biggest takeaway is what this movie has to say about fear. Mm -hmm. Because the most well-known line from the book and the movie is in the letter from her dad of courage is not the absence of fear, but is rather the judgment that something is more important than fear. The brave may not live forever, but the cautious do not live at all. And obviously that's directly applicable to Mia having to come to terms with her her legacy as a princess and what that means for the future, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But it's also just really good advice for teenagers in general because this is a crossroads in their life where things start to get really scary where you recognize that you're about to be leaving the comfort and safety of childhood and you're going to be a little bit more independent and there's a lot of uncertainties facing you towards the future and it's okay to be scared. Mm -hmm. Like being scared is part of having courage and it's important to take risks and to live your life and to not, you know, hold yourself up in a tower and take a chance on on things. And I think that's really, really important important messaging and if there's one thing i hope people take away from this movie it's that yeah and it's also just a really good metaphor for growing up and having to deal with more adult situations and adult responsibilities as a whole Mm -hmm. so as we sort of wrap things up on the princess diaries i wanted to share something else from the article that i found quite endearing which is that deborah chase the producer and meg cabot the writer They wanted to see the movie before the official premiere, Mm -hmm. but every theater that they went to was sold out. Okay. They finally got in and every seat was full and they had to stand in the aisle and then they got kicked out of their own movie. (laughs) (laughs) And at the actual premiere, Anne Hathaway came up to Meg Cabot and she was like, do you think that I did a good job? And I said, you did a great job. And she started to cry. Little tears welled up in her eyes and she had no idea what a star she was and was going to be. 
I love Anne Hathaway. I do too. It uh, makes me so happy. Have we come back around on people liking her? I think her, Are we good now? I think her performance in Modern Love might be what got people back on board with her. I don't know if you've seen that where nope. she talks about being bipolar. Mm-mm. So she was on a show called Modern Love and her character on it, because um, it's like an anthology series, is bipolar. And a scene from her episode went viral where it's her talking about being bipolar and feeling like she is unworthy of love and that she's a burden. And, you know, the the woman acting opposite of her is telling her, like, you know, you're not a burden and you're mm-hmm. the most fun person that I've ever been around. And it's all about loving people for, you know, who they are, even if they are mentally ill. And it is such a gut-wrenching and beautiful performance. And I think people got back on board around there. Okay. Which is just really frustrating because I, I think Anne Hathaway got a lot of the Kristen Stewart hate, mm-hmm. like that sort of thing, where it's like, but she's just beautiful and wonderful and just... I love her so much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know if she's reached like Jennifer Garner status in my world in terms of just I have unbridled love for her. Mm-hmm. But you watch something like The Princess Diaries and you just feel very, very good afterwards. Totally. Well, Harmony, the time has come. The Princess Diaries is asking you to the prom. Is it a yes, a no, or a maybe? And are you writing anything in M&M's on the pizza back? Ew. (laughs) Fucking gross. Uh, Yeah, yeah, it's a yes. And I definitely enjoyed sitting down and watching this movie. I mean, I feel like I've seen the whole thing probably at some point or another. Mm -hmm. Maybe just not necessarily in one complete sitting. But I don't think I would have enjoyed this movie as much if it was not Anne Hathaway. If it was Mm -hmm. not Julie Andrews. Like, Like, this is a good movie with a good plot and good writing but god this cast is what makes it great yeah i agree completely this is a movie that would have been good no matter what Mm -hmm. but it's great because of all of the right pieces falling in together Mm -hmm. beautiful those pieces did not fall together apparently for the sequel no (laughs) it's fine like there's nothing wrong with it it's just it's fine it's fine Well, friends, that takes us out on The Princess Diaries. As always, if you love the show and want to support us, you can give us a five-star review on Apple iTunes. You can follow us on Patreon. We have a Patreon, patreon.com backslash this ends at prom. Tons more content, fun little community over there. And once we reach $500 a month, we will interrupt the schedule to do Grease, and I will have a bad time. Getting so damn close. <laughs> you can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at This Ends at Prom. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at BJ Colangelo. Harmony, where are you? I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at Velocitraptor, Veloci underscore trap underscore tour. And as always, huge thank you to the Sonderbombs for allowing us to use their song title as our theme song. Harmony, do you have a cool indie band you want people to check out this week? I actually have a whole indie album for everyone to check out. So I don't know how it is in the rest of the country, but it's still hot as shit here. It's still very much summer despite being September. Mm -hmm. It's not really cooling down. So the album I want to recommend everyone check out is called Summer Jams Part 2. It's got a lovely... Like, uh, I, I, w- I don't want to say it's full anime, but it looks like some Sega Dreamcast art of two people sharing a milkshake. It's pretty tight. But some of the highlights off of this very, very good indie compilation include The Tragedy of a Sleepy Bitch by Tape Girl, which is my favorite, Desert by Please Mosh, and 
2001 Light Years Away by Barely March. Those are some of my favorites on it. It's really good. It almost goes without saying, but like it's a compilation of really good summer jams that are very fun, good good pop melodies, pretty light for the most part. Uh, yeah, go check that out and support those independent bands. I love that. Yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. Also, I just really like Tape Girl. <laughs> I, just, I can't wait for Tape Girl to release like a full LP. It's going to be one of the coolest things. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, friends, thank you again for listening. We will see you next week. And don't forget, save that last dance for us. Bye. Goodbye. This episode was brought to you by Pod People Productions. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit podpeople.me.